Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. A clear sky and winter sun is shining through my window as I record this, and I feel lucky to be able to contemplate moments like these as I gradually emerge from isolation. The days are getting shorter, but there might still be enough late afternoon light to read a few pages before the cold settles in. So much bookish goodness to share with you today. Ever wanted someone to recommend a reading list made especially for you? Well, Yarra Plenty Regional Library's Book Valet Service is on the case. Matching readers with a custom-made book prescription. And the process of making that perfect book match is pretty fascinating. So much so... They've made a podcast following some of the most interesting cases. Librarian and author Sarah Schmidt joins me to talk about the Book Valet service and In the Good Books podcast later in the hour. But soon, amoral tech billionaire Davis Hucken founds a secretive laboratory on a remote corner of the Tasmanian wilderness, where his team of scientists begin to resurrect extinct species of plants and animals, tweaking their genome for the modern world and to combat human-induced climate change. But when he recruits scientist Kate Larkin and her partner Jay, the stakes in this already ethically dubious endeavour are about to get a whole lot higher as they prepare to resurrect a Neanderthal child. James Bradley's ghost species weaves a meditation on climate change with a modern Prometheus tale, questioning what it is to be human or not human along the way. I spoke with James Bradley last week and I'll be playing that interview very, very soon. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Amoral tech billionaire Davis Hucken founds a secretive laboratory on a remote corner of the Tasmanian wilderness where his team of scientists begin to resurrect extinct species of plants and animals, tweaking their genome for the modern world and to combat human-induced climate change. But when he recruits scientist Kate Larkin and her partner Jay, the stakes in this already ethically dubious endeavour are about to get a whole lot higher as they prepare to resurrect a Neanderthal child. James Bradley's ghost species weaves a meditation on climate change with a modern Prometheus tale, questioning what it is to be human or not human along the way. I spoke with James Bradley last week. Here's the interview. James Bradley, welcome to Backstory. Thanks. It's great to be here. Now, your book, Ghost Species, is... I was trying to think about a definition for a book of its nature, and obviously it's just a cracking read, but uh, I've been talking particularly with my students about cli-fi and some of the conventions of it, and I was sort of thinking this book uh, does sort of talking about science and particularly things like climate science really, really well, and uh, I want you to introduce the book itself, but then I want to come back to this idea of how you write a book that sort of contains quite a lot of information about science in it without kind of slowing down a narrative. Uh, yeah, sure. Look, it's, uh, the book is the book kind of begins now, like kind of in this moment, um, you know, maybe it's tomorrow. And it's about a 
there's a billionaire who has a scheme to, to, to kind of re-engineer the environment and part of what he wants to do is to bring back Neanderthals and he finds these two scientists and gets them to help him resurrect Neanderthals and they create this Neanderthal child. And the female scientist kind of bonds with the child uh, and, and the novel is then about, uh, I suppose, that bond between the mother and the child, but also about the the Neanderthal girl growing up over about the next 20 years uh, against the kind of backdrop of kind of hastening climate catastrophe, hastening, I guess, kind of societal collapse. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's the, the book, I mean, I guess the book, I wanted very much to write about a series of questions about that that, that, that way in which climate change kind of unhinges our ideas of temporality, that sense that you know, we have geological time crashing into crashing into human time. You know, we have the deep past erupting into the present. You know, I saw a story the other day about a about an, a hundred and something year old village that had been a shale village, which had been lost in the forest up in the Wallalai, and has suddenly appeared because there's been the bushfires have swept away all of the forest, and suddenly, this, for the first time in a hundred years, this lost village is back. So that sense that things are kind of erupting out of the past into the present. And I think also I wanted to think uh, a bit about, uh, I guess, about grief and about parenting and about the bonds between parents and children. I mean, uh, I began the book kind of as my father died and uh, my mum died just as I finished it. So it's been very much a book that's been bookended by that sense of kind of personal loss, I guess, and kind of it's been very much about kind of articulating and thinking through some of that stuff. The, the real heart of this novel, as you rightly point out, is the relationship between the mother and child, uh, you know, and this young Neanderthal girl really, you know, growing up in an era that, uh, you know, she wasn't originally supposed to, I guess, her, her species had died out. But, but what I found really interesting about that as well was that you kind of managed to wind in the sort of science um, and observations with this kind of genuinely um, held together narrative that didn't lose any of its emotional impact. And I'm this is a show about craft, and I'm really interested in how you did that because I sort of went over it a little bit, and you do at, on occasion really have quite a lot of uh, sort of scientific observations or you pull out sort of a drawer of facts uh, about uh, a particular sort of, you know, whether it's sort of a period of history um, or, you know, I guess archaeology um, or science, you kind of pull those things out in a way that sort of fits in with the text. How do you write that? It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, one of the things I've always loved about the novel uh, as a form is that it's got that kind of capaciousness and it's got that... I guess that kind of mutability and flexibility. So you can do all kinds of things with novels. You know, they can be in verse. They can be, you know, a hundred pages long. They can be two thousand pages long. I mean, that, that sense you can kind of do all kinds of things with them. But I, I, I do think that one of the things you come up against when you're trying to write about climate and you're trying to write about environmental catastrophe is that they're incredibly difficult subjects to write about. So you have this sense that they. You know, they kind of exceed the tools that we have to deal with them. I mean, novels are very much things designed to kind of talk about human life, to talk about human society, to talk about social life. And, and when you're suddenly trying to tell a story which is about deep time, which is about, 
you know, kind of massive disruption of systems. I mean, all of those kind of things, incremental change, disaster, all of those things you end up writing about when you're writing about climate, environmental catastrophe, that becomes really difficult. So I guess in this book I was trying to find a way of, as you say, kind of marrying this very personal story, which seems to me in many ways to be the heart of the book, but also to speak to that kind of larger that larger series of questions. And I suppose, I mean, I think there are some some kind of techniques that you can use which are around, uh, I'm really interested in, people constantly draw that distinction when they talk about writing between showing and telling. And it seems to me there are a series of quite interesting things you can use telling for. I mean, and that is about kind of delivering science, it's about delivering information, it's about delivering the way we see things. So, so I kind of played around with some of those ideas. But also I guess one of the things I wanted the novel to do because it's so kind of domestically focused and the catastrophe is happening for most of the book on the other side of the hill, if you know what I mean. Um, um, I wanted that sense that for a lot of the book the catastrophe is kind of mediated. So it's mediated by screens, it's mediated by them watching it, it's mediated by that sense that it's always happening to somebody else until suddenly it's happening to them. You know, and and I guess that was about trying to catch that way that we live at that moment, at the moment, that kind of weird sense that, I mean, we just spent the summer with the bushfires down the East Coast. I mean, I live mm. in Sydney. You had, we had two and a half months in Sydney where the place was choked with smoke, you know, where the beaches were covered in ash, where, I mean, it's just I mean, the same thing in Melbourne, but it just went on and on for weeks and months. But the fires were always somewhere else. You know, I, I was talking to friends on the phone who were down protecting their houses, but the, I wasn't protecting my house. Do you know what I mean? So it was that kind of weird yeah. thing where the disaster is moving towards you, but it hasn't quite got to you yet. And I wanted I've, that sense in the novel, hmm. you know, that you can kind of see the tsunami coming and you can see the cracks beginning to form around them all the way through, but it's not quite here yet. And then it, then it is there quite suddenly. Yes, quite palpably. Uh, I, I feel like, you know, I really want to sort of probe this idea a little more of, of people learning things through fiction. It's it's certainly, I, I was a great reader of fiction as a child, hardly a surprise, I guess. Uh, but I, I really feel as though I learned probably even more about the world or got interested in subjects that I then went on to read in nonfiction form through novels. It really, uh, I think it manages to humanise these otherwise abstract ideas in a way. What kind of balance do you need to strike, though? Because you've sort of talked about that in the context of your novel, uh, to avoid being didactic. And also, do you think there is a responsibility for storytellers to explore issues um, that affect us in society, including obviously climate change? Um, let me answer the second part of that question first. Um, uh, uh, that whole question of kind of responsibility seems to me to be a really interesting one. I mean, I think that when... I think there's been a really odd thing over the last 50 years where there's been a kind of retreat by a lot of novelists, particularly from the idea that their work is political. You know, so you have these kind of constant claims that, you know, the novel, the job of the novel was not politics, the job of the novel was not campaigning, the job of the novel was not all of these things. But if you look back at the history of the novel, certainly in the 19th century, that was seen quite clearly as one of the jobs of the novel. You know, it was a kind of tool for kind of social change. Um, and I, I think that's changed a bit over the last few years. I think there's much more of a sense that novels and fiction are, are, are political things and can, and can kind of achieve 
or can be directed to kind of political arguments. And, and, you know, I mean, I do think that there are some issues around you don't want them to be didactic, you don't want them to be, you know, kind of agitprop dressed up as fiction. Um, but it does seem to me that, you know, I would like my fiction to have some effect, if that makes sense. Now, I'm not sure if that's what I want. Like, I don't know if that's the driving force behind it and I'm not sure that that's really the test of whether it succeeds, you know, because it seems to me that if, you know, you want a novel to fix climate change, you're probably setting the bar a bit higher for the novel. But um, but it does seem to me that there is a kind of level at which we want the novels to be politically engaged with the world. And it seems to me that when you're writing about climate particularly, you know, to be honest, I don't know what else you write about at the moment. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there's this sense that, you know, this is the biggest thing that's confronting our world. It touches every aspect of our society. It touches every aspect of our lives. It's going to increasingly affect our lives on every level. How do you not write about it? You know, how do you not be grappling with it in your fiction? It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Actually, I, I woke up to the news this morning that apparently um, that our emissions globally have dropped by 17% <laughs> since COVID struck, which is amazing, um, but also then immediately uh, focuses your responsibility on, you know, there's this great rush uh, for world leaders to return to business as usual. Uh, can we not exploit this moment uh, to really take advantage of a situation none of us invited, but that, that has offered us an opportunity of looking at things afresh? Have you considered that that this is a really interesting time for your book to be coming out in that respect? I have. I mean, it, it is really interesting. So, I mean, the book, I guess, you know, I was doing the editing on the book in over Christmas and then kind of the, the kind of lead up to it was, was across kind of January, February, when you could see all of this building. Um, and... And at one level, that was quite alarming. You know, I found myself going, I've got this book coming out. You know, I mean, another level. It makes me sound really self-absorbed. But, you know, you're kind of going <laughs> at, a kind of, at a kind of practical level. You're saying to yourself, well, I've got this book coming out. You know, what's going to happen with it? I mean, there are other things on my mind, I have to say. You know, I was probably more concerned about what's going to happen if everybody dies. But, um, but you know, it was certainly something that was in my mind. But then the more I kind of thought about it, the more I found myself thinking – in a weird kind of way, you look at the pandemic and and the process of watching this thing, which has this kind of arithmetical inexorability, you know, the, the infection rate is this, you know, the death rate from infection is this, you know, it spreads exponentially, you know, and, and as that happens, it just kind of overwhelms our systems like a kind of tsunami kind of washing over things. And, and in a weird kind of way, I was really struck by the, the degree to which it's it, it was almost like a I guess a kind of speeded up version of what climate change is going to do to us. You know that kind of sense that you know what you're watching is this kind of process of systemic crisis, but it's happening over days and weeks, not over years and decades. And so in an odd kind of way, it seemed to me that because the novel is talking so much about a whole series of those questions about kind of systemic collapse, about, you know, having to confront reality rather than what we'd like the world to be, um, in an odd kind of way, as it got closer, I thought, well, this is a kind of, the novel in a weird kind of way speaks to that moment in, in, a, way that, in a way that I perhaps hadn't expected it to. 
I think also, I, I guess, converse to that, I was considering as well that um, that your book arrives at a time when there is some hope around climate um, management. Like we actually have shown that in the face of a crisis, in fact, we can take drastic action. Um, many climate change uh, books or books around uh, climate science, as yours is, do take the view that humans will do nothing uh, and and climate change will progress. And that mm-hmm. certainly has been the evidence by the world. And, and if our leaders have their way, that is where things will go. But I think what we've seen, particularly with that 17% drop, is that there's, there is a window of possibility. Um, this time of grief and of, of, a, of an emulation of, of what it is that, that, you know, a big crisis can do also shows us that we have the capacity to change behaviors that have inherently damaged the environment and long term will lead to the extinction of many species, potentially including our own. Uh, do you feel like uh, this is a, also a time when a book like yours might land uh, to a receptive audience uh, as opposed to simply one that feels a bit hopeless? <laughs> um, yeah, and I actually agree with you about that. I mean, I think the thing that's been really encouraging is after, you know, 30 years of people saying we can't do anything about climate change, it's too hard, you know, no aspect of the system can be altered in any way because, you know, the cost will be too high. We suddenly discover that faced with a crisis, we can change very fast, you know, that you can you can utterly transform, you know, kind of the economic model that we're operating on over the space of a few weeks, you know, and, and that's been, as you say, kind of weirdly encouraging. A, a lot less encouraging is watching the government looking at the other side of this in Australia particularly and saying, so what we need is a fossil fuel-led recovery. Um, you know, so, I mean, you see that all of those old old forces which are kind of holding us back from making that transformation are now girding their loins to kind of get back into the fight. So, I mean, I think that there's two things going on there, but I absolutely yes. agree that there is a kind of positive side to all of this, which is out of all of the awfulness, you have seen people's capacity to work together, people's capacity to kind of empathise with each other and our capacity to, to kind of change societies quite fast when we need to. And that, that's been really, really encouraging. Um, yeah. and, and I do think that, I mean, I don't know that I would think of it as, I think it's a fairly unconsoling book. I'm not sure that I think it's a hopeless book. <laughs> I think it's a book that takes you somewhere. I mean, one of the things I, I really do, I want to, I want listeners to know that actually the book is a, a really great read and not <laughs> a hopeless book. Certainly not at all what I in, implied. I guess no, a lot no, no, of people no. do feel quite overwhelmed in the face of climate change. And I think past actions of governments, uh, the way the world goes, very much suggests to us that there isn't a sense of hope. So I think approaching a, a book is also very much about a mindset that you're in. Um, yeah. That, that is more my meaning, I guess. <laughs> no, no, no I, no, I understood what you meant. But, but I mean, I actually think in a weird kind of way, you were asking before what fiction can do in this space. And, you know, one of my answers to that would usually be something along the lines of one of the things it does is it lets us imagine things that are difficult to think about because climate change is very difficult to think about. What will the world be like when it's changed? What will it be like when none of the rules that we live by today, none of the structures we live by are there anymore? What will that feel like? And certainly in my last book, Clay, that was something I was trying to to kind of think about. You know, what, what will it feel like to live in a climate change future? But I do think one of the other things fiction can do is we live in this odd space at the moment where we – most of us exist in this weird state of dissonance. So what we do is we say, I understand the science. 
I understand how bad things are, you know, to differing degrees, but we all have, most of us have some sense of that. While simultaneously, we go along with our normal lives, you know. So you do that weird thing where I know what's coming in 10 years is bad. I know, you know, things are likely to get worse rather than better. I know just how bad the climate models are. Simultaneously, I've got kids, you know, and you talk to them about their futures. You you kind of go on with normal life with them. So there's this constant dissonance between what you know and how you react to it. And there's a kind of psychic cost to maintaining that dissonance. I do think that one of the things that fiction does is by forcing us, in a sense, to confront that denial, but also to put us in the space where, in a sense, the worst has happened. It allows us to kind of step out of that dissonance for a little while, that kind of weird thing where you can say, okay, so I don't have to kind of pretend anymore that everything's okay. I can I can be with something and be in a space where everything is not okay. And I do think that's, in a weird kind of way, that's something fiction does really, really well. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm talking to author James Bradley about his book, Ghost Species. Uh, and I'm really fascinated as well to, to return, because we have talked a lot about the central kind of way of, of dealing with the progress of climate change, which is obviously a very big part of of the book. Um, but again, the heart of it is this real relationship uh, between uh, the mother and Neanderthal child. There's also a wonderful sort of rendering of a, um, let's just say tech billionaire for the sake of argument, uh, which I already kind of like have by my kind of Elon Musky kind of character, except slightly more crazy um, view of, of this, uh, this particular character. Uh, but I, I really wanted to kind of just further talk about the representation of the, the Neanderthal because it's a really, it's a wonderfully nuanced uh, approach to to kind of really balancing up what we know in science and the things that are gradually emerging about what we really don't know uh, and especially what we don't know about um, what this uh, species that's lost to history that is so close to our own and, in fact, as far as we know, crossbred uh, with Homo sapiens, um, in fact, how they would respond uh, to the world now. So uh, can you discuss how you've kind of created this character because she's really quite engaging and delightful um, and you've given her a voice as well. Yeah, and that was really important to me. So the novel uh, the novel kind of is in a sense divided into two halves. So in the first half it's really the mother's perspective and then it becomes Eve's perspective in in the second half as she kind of gets older, you know, and becomes a you know becomes a teenager, becomes a young woman. And that was really important to me because it seemed to me that she needed not to be a subject. Like she needed to be someone with a voice and a presence and and with, the, you know, with her own presence in the novel. That was very, very important to me right from the start. And I guess it, look, she was – I really loved writing her. I mean, some novels you find you really – most novels, but, you know, you end up really caring about some of the characters. And a number of the characters in this book I think are very close to me, like in a weird kind of way. I mean, all my books are pretty personal, but this is a very personal book. There's a lot of my life in it. There's a lot of, you know, especially a bit about recreating extinct species. Um, uh, but, you know, I mean, there's a lot of my kind of life kind of filtered through it. But with, with her, I guess you look at the science, and the science is very – the weird thing about the science is that it keeps changing. You know, and we, you, you clearly have 
a couple of different kind of threads in the science. And one is that they were less intelligent than us. They were outcompeted by us. You know, they were they were kind of a step down the chain in a sense from us. And the other is that they were actually quite sophisticated. You know, they may have had art, they had tools, you know, they interbred with us, you know, and they, they were perhaps not that different from us. Um, and so I guess once I was writing the novel, I decided quite quickly that I didn't want to write a novel where she was lesser in a sense because that seemed, you know, I just, I just didn't like the kind of, kind of politics ambience of it, whatever you say. So, so, so I ended up saying, well, look, she's as intelligent as us, but she's different to us. You know, so she she's not as good with groups. Um, she is more and she's got a kind of capacity to kind of be in place that we don't have. And she finds a number of things that we do routinely around lying, fighting for power, you know, all of those kinds of things, our kind of duplicity mm. and violence are kind of alien to her, you know. So she's she's kind of thrust into this world filled with these people who are like her but not her, in a sense, who are very close to her in um, in many ways but, but not like her in other ways. So I feel as though there are many readers that will see a lot of themselves in Eve. Um, she is an incredibly empathetic character in that respect, that looking at the world um, as an outsider, really kind of questioning things. In fact, probably a lot of children do question why we do things in the first place. Um, some people retain that for their whole life, that fish-out-of-water experience. And I felt like Eve was a very human character in, in many ways, and I guess that does really call into question, which I guess is also something that your book is sort of playing with, is what is it to be this idea of human and why do we aggrandize it? Absolutely. And one of the things that I wanted with her was that sense that she is – us but not us, you know. So she, you know, this kind of chapter when she's a teenager and I really liked that idea, you know, when you're a teenager you already feel weird, you already feel like your body is wrong, you already feel like, you know, you're this kind of strange fish out of water. And I thought, well, what happens if, you know, you are a fish out of water? What happens if you are, you know, if your body is actually different from everybody else's body? You know, it's bigger, it's stronger, it's, it's you know, all of those kinds of things. So, so I wanted that sense, but I also wanted that sense that once – once you step out of the Homo sapiens perspective and into her perspective, you're kind of looking back at us. And, uh, and in a sense, that's in fact what the billionaire wants right at the beginning. He wants to be able to see humanity differently, but she does see humanity differently because suddenly she's looking at us and not from us. So I wanted that kind of sense that the perspective shifts away from us and she can see us kind of revealed both for what's good about us, but also for all of the things that are terrible about us, you know, our violence, our duplicity, you know, I mean, all of those, those kinds of things. And so, so yeah, that was very much something I was after, that, that sense of kind of us and not us, but also that she is someone who, and she's someone, not something, who is in many ways like a lot of people, you know, she feels like a fish out of water. James Bradley, I could genuinely talk to you about this book all day. <laughs> it's been such a delight. Um, I, I would love to leave uh, on the note of uh, are you actually considering a new book now? And I'm really fascinated because your mind obviously uh, I, I feel as though, and this is a presumption about the way you do research, that you sort of get interested in an idea and then that synthesizes into into something like a novel is there anything that you're you're thinking about or working on now that uh, will come out of this strange time that we're in? <laughs> um, 
Uh, I've actually been writing, uh, I'm working on a nonfiction book, um, which I kind of have taken a break from at the moment, but I've been working on a new novel, which is, it's another kind of climate one, but I wanted to write one which was more directly engaged, I think, with some of the questions around kind of class and power and, and the way they interface with um with climate, so it's a yeah, it's, it's another kind of climate-driven novel, but it's not much like this one, and not much like Clade. It's a much tighter, more um, it's a crime novel basically. But um, but yeah, so it's a yeah. So, so but I, I was really interested in one of the things I've really enjoyed about the last couple of books I've written was trying to find ways to talk about environmental crisis, but. I've ended up doing it in a very oblique kind of way quite often and I wanted to write something which was really about the kind of social geography of the new world, you know, of what it might be like. So that's something I've been thinking about quite quite a lot. Well, on that note, James Bradley, thank you so much uh, for joining me today on Backstory. Well, thanks. It's been great. That was author James Bradley discussing his book, Ghost Species, out now. Up next, ever dreamt of a service that matches readers with the perfect books? Yarra Valley Regional Library's Book Valet has made it a reality. Author and librarian Sarah Schmidt joins me to reveal all very soon. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Ever wanted someone to recommend a reading list made especially for you? Well, Yarra Plenty Regional Library's Book Valet service is on the case, matching readers with a custom-made book prescription. And the process of making that perfect book match is pretty fascinating, so much so they've made a podcast following up on some of the most interesting cases. Librarian and author Sarah Schmidt joined me to talk about the Book Valet service and in the Good Books podcast. Sarah Schmidt, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I was very intrigued by what is happening at Yarra Plenty Regional Library. Uh, Sarah, you uh, have something to do with that, I imagine, and I would love you to talk about what is the Book Valet? The Book Valet, in its most uh, simplest terms, is uh, it's a bespoke uh, reading recommendation service um, that our librarians do just for you. So um, you would fill out a survey. We want to know all little details about you, such as what you like to read, what you don't like reading, what you're in the mood for. Um, we even ask you questions about some of your favourite TV shows and movies, and then we kind of sit down and um, and we might also ask you, like, is there anything else you might want us to um, know about your reading habits or anything else, um, you know, that you particularly like in a, in a story? And then we take all of that information and then in about 48 hours' time, we will come up with three amazing things for you. And that's the Book Valet service. So it's basically um, beyond personal recommendations. It's really wonderful. I'm, I'm sort of intrigued because it, it is kind of what librarians do anyway. I will totally own, as would I would say, almost 100% of the people who listen to this yeah. podcast, <laughs> that I was a massive Lisa Simpson. Um, so I knew my librarians, my librarians knew what my reading habits were and would actually hold new books that came in for me because yeah. I was that level of nerd. Uh, so I, 
you know, I kind of, I'm already very deeply uh, connected with the role that librarians have played in my life. Yeah. Um, but this sort of strikes me as a sort of offering a service to people who, who maybe are new to reading or <sighs> who want to sort of re-engage. I think so. And, and there's different, uh, different ways, uh, we kind of can go about this because on the one hand, this is a job that librarians do, but actually the role of a librarian is so varied. And we often, um, we don't have, um, that amazing amount of time to be able to do one on one things and spend hours with, with just one person to find the right book for you. And so we do, um, we, we can recommend books, you know, every single day. Um, but I guess to get something that really speaks to you, um, is is another kind of level of you know thing that we're we are able to do and the one thing that we kind of the reason why book valet is so interesting to me at least as well is that we can kind of take where you are in your reading journey so whether you're a lapsed reader um you're kind of new to reading um you you know it's not a big shock to us that people have uh, haven't read for a really 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 long time or at all um or you might be the other way and you read so much that you're kind of what is next for me so we kind of take all of those bits about your life um and what you might be looking for and then we just try to come up with the best recipe for you it's really interesting. I think the School of Life a few years ago introduced this idea of a book therapist. Yes. Uh, where they, was this in any way connected? Because I, I thought it was such a wonderful idea and I thought there should be one all year round. A book there should therapist. be one all year round. Someone who really analyzes. Yeah. I think, look, yeah, sorry, no, no, I was just going to say that there um, other library services do this and I think we all have our different takes on it. And I guess the, the one thing, um, I mean, in in library speak, this is kind of very old fashioned reader advisory type of uh, thing that we're doing. But I think the idea that as we've kind of, um, you know, especially now, I think the idea of going to books and to read to kind of find something out about life or to to soothe you in a in a mood that you might be in or just an experience that you're having, I think being able to help someone through that and say, here's this book. Um, that I think if you read this, it might help you understand where you are or it might just make you go, no, I don't want anything to do with this at all. And I think that's the most exciting thing is, um, is yeah, to go through um, the extensive list of the things that humans have written for decades and decades rather than just give um, the new, oh, here's the new um, Tim Winton that's come out this week. You know what I mean? It's sort of, it's going a bit beyond just um, here's, here's the new books that have come out. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm talking to Sarah Schmidt of the Yarra Plenty Regional Library about this new concept of a book valet, which in fact is a connection to an older concept of librarians just generally being awesome and recommending books. Uh, but this is a much more one-on-one -on -one service. Where did this uh, really emerge from, Sarah? Uh, so we started doing uh, this at our service um, last year uh, through our Book Lovers Festival, which is um, a, a two-week uh, festival uh, that we run through September every year, um, and it's about you know celebrating books and reading and ideas and and, and local artists and and just you know trying to um, I guess find ways for people to kind of connect to each other in a community setting, um, and we decided to do this. Um, just to see if people liked it, I guess. Um, and we were so overwhelmed um, in two weeks. I think we did something like 100 book valet uh, surveys in two weeks, which is just extraordinary. And at the time, I think there was maybe about 11 of us on the team kind of doing it. Um, and so... 
uh, we kind of, um, I, I have to say it was one of the best uh, things I've ever done at work. It was so much fun to be able to go and find uh, books for people. Um, and what was kind of happening was, especially in the office where I was working, uh, we would get these book valets come through and then we would start having discussions about, oh, God, you know, I've got this person who is um, looking for some obscure sci-fi reference to a book that they really like. And I mean, and I don't read sci-fi, so I'm like, how the hell am I going to help them do that? And so I guess what started a Emerging through that was um, these amazing conversations about books and um, characters and all that between, I guess, librarians. And then that's how we helped, you know, start developing, um, I guess, these book tonics for people. And it was so much fun um, that we decided that it actually should be something that, you know, we make something out of. And so then we came up with a podcast. Yes, I, I really do uh, want to hear um, more about the podcast and also um, how people can sign up for the Book Valet as well. So tell us about this uh, this podcast that you were involved with because I think our listeners uh, are always interested in really great book content. So this is a book podcast. It is no a book. surprise. No surprises. Uh, what do you expect librarians to talk about? Um, but it is it is a book um, podcast. And so what we do, we literally get a book valet that has come through. And then uh, there's three hosts. Uh, it's myself, uh, Leifa and Patrick. And we go off um, with the same survey. And we go off in our our little computers and in our brains and we come up with three books each for this person. So they end up getting nine um, books recommended to them and then we come back and we just start talking about um, our thoughts and feelings about what we were thinking when we were reading The Valet and then um, and then how we kind of, uh, I guess, took apart what everyone was saying and then um, came up with the prescription for them. Because I guess one of the things uh, that Book Filet is so great about, it's it's often understanding what people think they want to read and what they actually do want to read. And yeah, which is a huge thing in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because that, that, that comment has particular resonance for me. I feel very called out by it. Oh, really? Uh, would you, um, would you, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I'm in a really interesting position because I'm lucky enough to be able to read a lot of new release Australian fiction, yep. uh, particularly and also Australian nonfiction as well. Uh, but I often don't get to read as broadly, um, perhaps as I once used to, because a yeah. lot of my reading is focused for this uh for the pod uh, for, sorry for the radio show but I would love uh for you to actually maybe even give me an example of how you would go about doing this uh prognosis oh. of what someone would read even just an example of of where you've done that that would be amazing okay uh well I I did one yesterday and I have to admit I'm the worst at recommending because I always have um you may have this as well I I have a go-to book that I just recommend to everyone regardless of whether that's what they actually want um and so I always recommend Hot Milk by Deborah Levy for all different reasons um I'm kind of banned from doing that. Having said that, we got a book valet come through, I think it was last week, and we're going to use it on our podcast. And I read what this person wants to read. And I'm like, oh my God, it's a jackpot. This is, ex I know exactly the book this person wants. Um, it's hot milk. And so basically, <laughs> I'm just like, yes, my moment has finally arrived. And so one of the things, um, and I'm just going off uh, a list of what this person would have said. So they kind of said that they wanted, um, they do love reading, but they had 
gone away from it and they're coming back. Um, and so they kind of wanted something that really grabbed them, but they also wanted something that was uh, that they could maybe analyse, that kind of brought in psychology a little bit. Um, if it was going to be Australian fiction, they wanted it to be around maybe like parenting or politics. Um, they kind of went in depth. Um, they really dislike best anything on the bestseller list. Um, and so, um, and then they gave, uh, what, who did they love? They loved Helen Garner, Drusilla Modjeska, and there was a, um, there was a third Lily Brett. Um, and then they talked about the prose that they liked. And so it was quite detailed. And actually the more detail we get, um, that's actually quite helpful. Um, however, we've also gotten a valet where, there is just no detail at all. So you've kind of got to go off the smell of an oily rag, I guess, <laughs> to kind of figure it out. And then they basically said that they just wanted beautiful prose and so and 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 interesting characters. And so I just, apart from the fact that hot milk came to me, I thought, oh, this is someone who clearly wants um they want to be challenged a little bit. Um and you know but they want to, they don't want to feel stupid, um, reading a, a book. And so I just, it's, it's a real balancing act. And one of the things that I know I do is I kind of just take one aspect, um, of each part of the survey and just kind of go through that. And because you don't want to give the first thing that comes to your head sometimes, although hot milk is great. Um, you kind of, cause the chances are they may have already read it. So you just keep going down these rabbit holes and, I have to say, if I could do this for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I would. It's just so much fun. And then when you come up with the list at the end and you present it mm. to someone, um, I I distinctly remember last year I, I recommended uh, way too many books to this poor woman. Uh, I recommended 10 because um, <laughs> I'm just like, you need to read this, you need to read this, and I kind of explained exactly why I did it. And um, I didn't hear back from her and I thought, oh, no, I've ruined her. And then um, and then about three weeks later she emailed and I um, I nearly cried <laughs> and um, I'm a cold-hearted person. Um, and so she basically <laughs> said that um, she had – she was so overwhelmed that someone had taken the time to even think about her and what she might like. And she was a new mum and um, and oh. just all of those things. I just thought, oh, I mean, we know that reading and books help people, but I guess it was just that that those little details and really listening to what someone is telling you they want, um, even if it's based off, um, you know, even TV shows that they've been watching because you get a really good sense of kind of a narrative that they like, maybe a feeling that they like. And so I guess, you know, the good thing about humans is that we have our own human types of algorithms and we're not just sitting at Amazon doing a thing. So we can actually, you know, just the nuance in all of these things is what's so important. So, yeah, I know. Well, I feel like I, I mean, should do one for you. I, think, <laughs> I am desperate for you to do one for me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll talk. Um, I want people to uh, find out how they can access this service uh, as well. How do you access the book valet? Well, you need to go uh, to our website. Uh, so our website is uh, www.yprl.vic.gov.au. And when you go to the website, there will be um, in one of the little banners that kind of flies across your screen, you will see a, I think it's purple. There's a, like a little purple thing that says book valet. You click on that 
Um, and then uh, it gives you all the information of how we're going to do it. And then the survey is there. So you just fill that out and then you press submit and then it goes to some person that you don't know. And in 48 hours time, you'll get something back. And so we choose from our collection, um, whether it be online, mostly at the moment, um, or when when we're able to give you a physical book, um, we can we can do that for you too. The only thing that someone will need to be is a member of our library. However, that's also very easy because you can do that online as well, um, and it's free. And you can live anywhere um, in Victoria and sign up as well. And the only reason why we ask you to be a member is so we can actually reserve books for you, if need be. So we got, try to look after you the whole entire way. <laughs> That's really, really fantastic. Uh, you've absolutely justified my uh, immediate panic when someone asked me to recommend a book because I'm like, yeah. I need to know more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tell me about you because I, I, their books are not just books. Um, but yeah, absolutely, I am going to be putting my hand up to uh, to find out more about what I actually want to read as opposed to what it is that I think I want yeah. to read. Uh, <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Sarah Schmidt, look, uh, again, this is such a wonderful topic. I'd love to have you on again uh, to maybe talk about some of the things that you've discovered uh, in the meantime. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the Today on Comfort Reads, time to discuss love in the time of cholera. It had been many years since I read this Gabriel Garcia Marquez classic, and the book had lost none of its vivid richness in depicting the decaying pomp of a post-colonial Caribbean island, the legacy of race and class divisions pushing through the cracks in the old colonial facades. The novel dives back to follow the threads of Florentino Ariza's five-decades-long obsession with Femina Daza, who he had a brief, passionate connection with as a teenager, and who rejects him and marries someone else. Marquez pokes at his character's pretensions, selfishness, and destructive impulses. And love, or rather obsession, is the real sickness here. Florentino from the first idealises Femina and holds this ideal in thrall until, at the very end of both of their lives, the fever of unrequited passion breaks and the reality of truly seeing and loving someone has a chance to survive. Rereading this book reminded me again of Marquez's lush descriptions and visceral portraits of ageing. But... I was struck again by just how creepy Florentino's pursuit really is, wearing down the widowed Femina Daza until she finally reciprocates his affection. It was hard to read. And trigger warning on this one, the book also describes sexual assault in a way that's at best neutral and at worst romanticised. And 60-year-old Florentino's predatory pursuit of a young girl makes this anti-hero pretty much irredeemable. In short, Love in the Time of Cholera is a flawed classic, but its prose is undeniably brilliant, the sickness at its heart, and I'm not talking about cholera, one that still sadly plagues society. If you've been joining me in reading Marquez's much-referenced classic, post your reading journey on Instagram. Tag me at backstoryrrr and hashtag love in the time of backstory, or email your thoughts to backstoryrrr at gmail.com. 
I'm thinking of posting a more nuanced and detailed review of my read, so check the links to at Backstory RRR on Instagram for that. If you'd like to send me a short piece or voice memo for comfort reads or meters for launch, email me at backstory at gmail.com or tag your loving the time of cholera reading experience on Instagram at backstory RRR hashtag loving the time of backstory. That's all we have time for today on Backstory. I'd like to thank my guests, James Bradley, author of Ghost Species, and Yarra Plenty Regional Library's Sarah Schmidt. Our segment theme song is Welcome to the Bunker Baby by Nicola Watson. You'll find her album on Bandcamp. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm going to be off for the next couple of weeks just recuperating from the busyness that seems to be part of our lives these days in the weird world that we find ourselves in. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.